This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the extended podcast version of Panel Borders, the UK's only monthly radio show about comics, broadcast on the first Wednesday of the month on Resonance 104.4 FM in London and on DAB and streamed at resonancefm.com. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this month's programme, which is the first of the autumn 2022 season, I'm talking to a pair of comic book creators whose work involves the curating and creating of comics. Later in the show, I'll be talking to artist Henny Beaumont about her exhibition Invisible People, which features art based on her graphic novel Hole in the Heart, and political cartoons, alongside work by neurodiverse artists as sponsored by local charities, Superstar Arts and Rocket Artists. However, to start off with, I'm talking to artist Kathy Brett in an interview recorded in her studio in Leatherhead. We're discussing her comic Mary and Agnes, a biographical comic which documents her grandmother's friendship with Mary Trump from the 1920s to the 2000s, her work in three-dimensional collages and reliefs, currently based on the famous Hitchcock film Rear Window, and her new role as a curator at Leatherhead Museum. I'm talking to Kathy Brett. We're in her studio in Leatherhead, and I'm surrounded by loads of fantastic examples of your artwork. And it shows that your practice has all sorts of different dimensions. You make three-dimensional uh, sculptures or reliefs or dolls' houses. I think all of these terms are probably mm-hmm. equally appropriate for your work. You do painting, um, you do uh, kind of flat illustration. These different forms of expression, have they developed at different times in your life? Have you found yourself working in different mediums uh, for a certain period and then trying out other ideas? Yeah, I think it's probably because I get bored very quickly. <laughs> Uh, it's always been my problem. Um, so, uh, yes, I, and I'm never able to focus on one thing at a time. So, I, you know, and that also get inspired by other people. So my practice is always going off uh, on tangents. And, um, and in fact, the three-dimensional stuff you were mentioning um, really came out of lockdown. Mm. So in 2020, um, because I wasn't sitting at my computer and creating two-dimensional illustrations. I think I had the, the freedom to actually make things. Um, so that became a compulsion, sort of making everything three-dimensional and moving and uh, with lighting effects and mm. things like that. So, um, and also to keep me sane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told me um, before we started recording that... Um, uh, one of the many kind of creative pursuits you had uh, in the past was working on shop windows. And yeah. I guess when you create a shop window display, it is a sort of diorama that's inviting some kind of narrative, even if that narrative is mainly around come here and buy something. <laughs> but but that idea of kind of scenography of creating a space um, that has a certain amount of intrigue to it. Do you think some element of that was kind of coming back? Yes, you know? definitely. I, I think I've always had that's theatrical element in my work. Mm. Um, in fact, my very first job after university was um, uh, assistant scenic artist in my local theatre. So I, I've always loved that that theatrical storytelling thing, um, and probably illustration was the the least 
theatrical of <laughs> my um, sort of visual outlets. Um, so yes, I think, and also, you know, cinema and film and all of these things come into my visual storytelling. Mm. Um, but yeah, make, doing shop windows was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I once did a, a Disney window. Um, it was uh, a Christmas window mm. for Regent Street. Oh wow! Um, and it was Winnie the Pooh and and friends on a turntable uh, Christmas tree. So I did all the visuals, and then mm. obviously the workshop worked out how it would actually <laughs> function. Uh, but yeah, I think that that theatrical thing was uh, really fun to do. Actually. Mm. Well, so that's something else that has also come back in your work recently. The moving uh, diorama with Winnie the Pooh is now being realised as moving dioramas uh, with characters from Jane Austen. Yeah, so now <laughs> I'm actually learning how to do the engineering, mm. the mechanics of it. So, um, you know, I always let someone else do that. Um, so now I'm working out how to make my illustrations move. So I'm loving that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting that you said that this was something uh, that came about during lockdown. Um, and yeah, it seems to be something in the zeitgeist that everyone spent all their time looking at screens and communicating through some kind of digitally mediated interface that a lot of people have gone back to making things with their hands. So I yes. guess there was definitely yeah. that going on with you. But I think you're, you're right. I think it was a reaction to not being with people um, not interacting. So there was sort of this need, I think, for creative people to, to, as you say, not just sit at screens, but to actually make and almost interact with their own work, I mm. think. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that could be <laughs> a weird theory. <laughs> no, 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 I think absolutely. Um, but, it, I mean, it's interesting that people probably know you best uh for your comic, um, Agnes and Mary. Mm, Mary and Agnes. 50-50 <laughs> chance of getting it right. Uh, Mary and Agnes, um, uh, because of the twist at the end. And indeed, you know, it was it was featured in a documentary by BBC Albert. But the, um, uh, the comic is a collage. I mean, there's all sorts of layers of things going on. There's yes. cyanotypes um, of uh, napkins, um, of handkerchiefs. Uh, there's photographs. There's reproductions of kind of like crumpled envelopes and so on so I guess even when you're doing flat work there's still sort of a three-dimensionality going there on there and actually that comic didn't start out as a comic it started ah. out as an art piece okay where I was uh, creating collages with my grandmother's um, sort of vintage linens so mm. she had this thing when she when she came to visit us she always had a lace handkerchief <laughs> tucked up her sleeve and so she would drop them around the house, and it was a family joke. But uh, you know, oh, she's dropped another handkerchief. So when I started making artworks with her photographs, um, I, I decided to sort of print them onto linen. I thought the easiest way to do that was with cyanotype. Mm. So making. Um, uh, yeah, we're both using that word. So maybe if you could explain it yeah, to the listeners at home. Is the blueprint process where you, um, you impregnate uh, paper or cloth with uh, two chemicals, um, which when exposed to the sun will stain mm. uh, blue. So if you lay something over the top to stop the sun from getting to the, the chemical, it will stay white. Um, so it's the old 
sort of analog process of, of um, uh, creating a copy of something. Mm. So it's a really nice process uh, and it's a great colour. Mm. It's a nice process when you're making things with, um, uh, you could do it with nature, with um, leaves. leaves and flowers mm. and ferns and stuff like that, but also with um, photographic uh, negatives. It works really well mm. with those. Uh, and I made collages with her handkerchiefs. Nice. <laughs> so, um, Just because you like the material not in a, in terms of wanting to then turn them into a narrative? Uh, yeah, well, the, the only narrative that was there was that it was about heritage, it was about her legacy. Mm. So she left a lot of photographs behind uh, and then I sort of was printing onto um, linens that, again, she left behind and I was uh, printing photographs of the family mm. um, sort of all the way back through history. So, yeah, it sort of, it made a narrative that made sense to me anyway. Mm. Interesting. Um, but then you did uh, turn it into a comic a few yeah. years down the road. Um, was that because you found 10 memoirs and realised that there was a lot of story there that could be? Well, that particular story, I don't know whether you want me to say. No, no, go for it. I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been three years. So, you know. Um, and also, uh, he, he has moved on. So the, the story is that Mary, of course, is um, the mother of Donald Trump. Uh, And Mary and Agnes, as teenagers, uh, were pen pals. Mm. Agnes was my grandmother, and Mary uh, lived on the Isle of Lewis and was Donald's uh, mother. So um, it really, it it took, the graphic novel really um, was happening alongside me exploring this whole story. Mm. So um, I had a a journalist, Torquil Crichton, uh, very interested in the story, and he comes from... Um, the Isle mm. of Lewis, uh, and so he was trying to get it turned into um, a drama or mm. a documentary, and eventually became a documentary. So I was sort of making my story mm. as a graphic novel at the same time as he was exploring um, mm. her story, and he actually did more research than I did. He went huh. and visited uh, Agnes's um, house she grew up in, and I have never been there. My oh. mother's never been there. Okay. Um, so, you know, he filmed outside her yes. tenement where she grew up. So, you know, it was a really interesting process to be creating my side of the story mm. whilst a journalist and then a filmmaker were exploring the other side of the story, which was mm. Mary's story. And it, again, you know, it feels like serendipity or something in the zeitgeist because I watched the documentary uh, Trump's Mother the other day. And in that, uh, the, the presenter, who I guess is the journalist you're talking about, yeah. says that uh, that he was interested in doing something on the topic. And a friend of his said, oh, I know this illustrator, Kathy Brett from Leatherhead, who actually has this story that would be relevant. So it just yeah. it and seemed to be the right was, time. Uh, was a publisher as mm. well. Um, so Mari Kidd. Um, so, you know, all these um, different connections, um, it seems to be a... Um, Something that happens quite a lot in mm. my, my practice. I meet someone and it turns into a book or it turns into a film or a documentary or a, a gallery show. Or mm. uh, I think that's the nature of being an artist, isn't it, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thinking about um, how you express yourself on the page when you're doing a comic or a graphic novel, um, if we look at some of the recent comics that you've made, 
for example, the, the comic you did about your experiences during lockdown, making masks and, and dealing with all of the uh, iniquities of being stuck at home that we all dealt with, that was kind of illustrated in a more sort of traditional way, yes. you know, um, uh, with pen and ink or digital pen, whichever, you know, you used. While something like Agnes and Mary uh, is, like I said, um, kind of a collage. So does it depend on the story that you're telling, the kind of uh, tools that you use to, to tell it? Yes, I think so. That Mary and Agnes really did... <laughs> did it, it wrong again, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> it, well, I, she should come first, you know. She's exactly. your, <laughs> your grand. <laughs> I know, yes, yeah, you're right, actually. It's such a change. There was a lot more work in, in that. So mm. uh, um, I think the, my lockdown comic... Um, called Now Off Your Hands, mm. um, was actually a much faster process. Um, and that was because it was uh, uh, the, Lakes, um, the Lakes Festival was coming up and uh, I thought I need yes. to produce something. So it was a slightly faster process. I think left to my own devices, I would have probably put a lot more complex mm. uh, stuff into it. So um, I think just that it was a practical um, decision thing, yeah. okay but when you're constructing um a comic like mary and agnes um how could you talk a little about the process because it looks like is it a digital collage did you photograph all the elements and then combine them in photoshop yes. or something like that yes all, all digital collage um and then actual photographs and mm. then uh um envelopes and mm. uh you know, bits of paper, and um, I really enjoy doing doing that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's interesting that it requires digital technology to do that sort of thing, you know, easily and effectively and also give you all of the choices of, I think I'll move that little bit to the left, I'll change mm. that font a little bit, you know. But it still feels like something that is hands-on, that is kind of, you know, made from real materials. So I yes. guess that is a theme in your work, you know, that keeps it on is. cropping and, up. And because um, I create such complicated um, fine art pieces mm. uh, that are multi-layered, I kind of want some of that in my comics and as you were saying earlier about if you want something complex it's extremely expensive to, to reproduce so uh, you know making a, a comic that has folded pages or, or mm. holes in the pages or, or um, you know different types of uh, paper all the way through it is extremely expensive so um, you know there's no other way of me creating those multi-layered collage pieces other than digitally yeah um, you know, if if I could, <laughs> I would make you know, much more complex one-off art books or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's the parts and lights. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that that could be the the two levels of Kickstarter. You know, ten pounds for the regular print edition, or eighty pounds for the one with a, a bulb and uh, you know some yeah. like pop-ups and in the it. Rest, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of brings us on to the project that you're working on at the moment, um, which is a retelling of Rear Window from the point of view of the victim. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Well, that came about because uh, I did an MA uh, five, six years ago, um, and I explored uh, 
some very interesting things to do with visual storytelling um, about borders and um, what you can, the way that you can tell stories but without showing mm. everything. So um, the idea of cropping uh, so that you're only seeing fragments of images and then the reader obviously has to make the rest of the story. Mm. And the very obvious um, way, uh, piece to do with that is, is obviously Rear Window. So um, Jimmy Stewart uh, watching his neighbours um, and putting the story together just from fragments. Mm. And uh, I really liked the, the panel effect mm. of the windows. I know it's been done before, um, and so a lot of people have actually seen this this parallel between uh, the window and the graphic novel uh, panels. So, um, but uh, some very interesting parts of the story are that that um, there are other people who are obviously also seeing the activity that's going on. So mm. there, there are stories that are not told. Mm. Um, and also the viewpoint uh, of the victim. Mm. Um, so she's sort of, um, she's written off as a nagging wife and who deserved to be chopped up by her husband <laughs> in the bath, which is the supposition. Um, and I thought, well, that's, that's not on, really. Mm. Um, so I created various um, projects to do with different viewpoints of the different characters uh, within that um, the square, mm. the, the different houses that overlook um, the same apartment. Um, so I created various things for my MA and then I sort of put it, put it aside because mm. it became quite a complicated project. Um, and I got it out again recently because I went to the Ladies Do Comics uh, residency Mm. So two months ago, um, and I was there with Nicholas Streeton, obviously, who runs the, the residency in Norfolk. Uh, and Rachel Ball was also there. And so both of them uh, nagged me yeah. to go back to this project because they thought it had legs. Mm. It had some mileage in it. Mm. Um, so I Even if the legs that. are in the East River. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So we actually watched the film again and talked about you know what other things I could explore so that in in a very roundabout way is mm. why I've come back to it mm. um, but now that I'm producing much more three-dimensional uh, work it seems like I'm not going back to the comic format I seem to be taking it into this much more theatrical box diorama mm. format which sort of works because it's about rooms and windows um i'm making it sort of much more architectural and it's about characters within rooms mm. um, so i'm really enjoying mm. revisiting that but it's interesting i mean I, you let me you kindly let me look at the original bound ma version of the project mm. and that still has kind of a sculptural quality to it that you have to sort of uh peer within sealed folded um pages uh, other pages are perforated, other pages have doors that you can open. So it already had a feeling of an object that yes. needed to be sort of penetrated or pulled apart in a certain kind of way. So yes. it almost yeah. invites a three-dimensionality from its original kind of 2D version. Mm. And the other thing that I explored in that 
as you talk about penetrated. Sorry. Also, you know, having yes. ripped and holes in it. And because it's about murder and about mm. a, 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 a corpse having been, uh, you know, chopped up in mm. the bath, as it mm. is, supposedly. Um, so, I, you know, I really loved exploring that as well. And I had sort of pink pages with red ink. And mm. so exploring lots of different sort of visual themes um around this this one character mrs thorwald mm. um and i felt like i needed to be rooting for her a bit <laughs> <laughs> um woodrow phoenix uh who has had a career as a professional uh animator and illustration and graphic novelist he went back to do an ma in illustration a few years ago um and said that one of the reasons he did it was because of the opportunities that are offered to you at art school that suddenly you have uh, access to materials that you wouldn't normally have. You'd have access to kind of art equipment that you wouldn't normally have. And I think, you know, he sort of pushed that as far as he possibly could by I think saying to his tutor, I want to make a really big book. What is the biggest book I could possibly make? <laughs> um, so in terms of your kind of like, you know, motives for doing the MA later in life, was it Similar I've seen sort of that. things. That's amazing, it is. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I'd seen that because I would probably have done something like that. <laughs> Everyone has a meter square book yeah. in them. <laughs> something with folding out um, apartments and doors and all sorts. Um, yes, yeah, so that's exactly why I did my right. own as well. And um, I sort of I, I moved house, sold a house, started building this studio that we're in, um, and I had a bit of spare cash. And I thought mm. this is the you know this is my chance now to actually go back and and do an MA, which I did over two years. And I chose um, UCA in Farnham because of print studio, mm. because I wanted to explore print. And in the end, I didn't actually do a huge <laughs> amount of print for my... Um, I, I did more sort of making um, books and working with paper and, and things like that. But it was exactly that, to have the opportunity of uh, access to really great... Um, studios and equipment and also uh, obviously the research um so you know being able to indulge all those things that I'd mm. not been able to do for you know years and years because I was churning out this sort of commercial work um so yeah it's in some ways that's a problem because I now keep wanting to do this <laughs> stuff that doesn't sell <laughs> You know, I'm happy. <laughs> well, you, you, you say that, but you are currently shortlisted for one of the Surrey uh, Artists of the Year and have submitted have, uh, yeah. various 3D pieces to that exhibition. Yeah. I think that this is interesting because I now don't see myself so much as an illustrator, a commercial mm. artist. I see myself as I'm more of a, a fine artist. Mm. Um, you know, I'm producing you know, much more one-off pieces um, and selling them rather than uh, it being sort of book ideas or, mm. or design uh, work. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying that, actually. Mm. But it feels in a way, I mean, you know, like I was saying, you're kind of using collage to a certain extent mm. in creating comic book pages, that this is a form of comic book production that just really isn't appreciated enough because some of the people that we consider to be, you know, giants of the medium, like Jack Kirby and Dave McKean. Uh, McKean uses collage a lot in yes. his work. Yeah. And even Kirby, from time to time, would uh, incorporate reproduction of photographs into some of his, mm. you know, images. So it feels like, you know, it's a, 
a way of telling stories um, that is kind of long overdue in terms of, you know, yes. being made mainstream in comics. Yes, I agree, yeah. Um, yes, I, de- I definitely have a feel that mm. for... It's not rejecting drawing so much. Mm. I think it's, it's just wanting to include a lot more um, mm. layers, literally more layers. Um, so in terms of the narrative, but also, you know... Um, the actual production. Mm. Uh, well, it's another tool. It's like, it's just, yes, a, it's another exactly. form of production. You've just taken on uh, another new role, mm-hmm. uh, working in um, Leatherhead Museum. So thinking of the various kind of strands of your practice over the years, which seem to include curation, even as much as a doll's house, for example, and you make doll's houses as being a mini exhibition in a way of different rooms that you've decorated and you're, uh, your current work having this kind of three-dimensionality to it, you know, these these box dioramas. In a way, is this kind of consolidating, you know, some of your various interests? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, it's very interesting because, the, uh, in fact, I did a, sm- a small project for the museum as part of my MA. Oh. Um, and so um, I actually produced my first miniature houses as part of that project. So um, probably some of the dioramas and, and miniatures that I create now have come mm. out of that, that project. But it's a very small building. Um, it's a very small old building, sort of three up, three down, uh, sort of almost medieval um, cottage. So I think my role as a curator is perhaps to create narrative. Mm. Um, so I'm, I will be in charge of the collection, uh, which most, most of which is in storage. Um, because the museum is so small, hmm. one has to select from the collection uh, to create displays. And I think um, my background as a storyteller hmm. is perfect for that. I hope it will be. I mean, I haven't actually done anything <laughs> yet. <laughs> it's all been talk and ideas uh, so far. Uh, but it'd be about um, you know going to the, the archive and the collection and just finding the story of our town hmm. uh, and you know, creating little narratives and um, then designing something that works inside that box of a a museum Mm. um, that then connects with the local community. So it's going to be about, you know, bringing people in who perhaps haven't been to museums before um, and then providing activities and Mm. things to look at, things to play with. I want it to be much more interactive. Um, and maybe we'll have some automata and nice. um, proper dioramas and something something that's quite theatrical. And I'm very keen on on audio archives as well, mm. so um, that might interest you as well. Um, so having interviews, uh, and then my my predecessor as curator was very keen on on having a an archive of um, interviews. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to make it a sort of a multi-experience um, place. Nice. Well, yeah, that sounds yeah. great. Well, one of the, the best um, exhibitions I've seen in recent years, um, if even the word exhibition is the right word, because if it's entirely aural, it's maybe yeah, a different term yeah. should be used. Um, it was in uh, the Little Theatre in Brighton, um, and they'd recorded actors rehearsing in the cafe and used uh, binaural... Um, microphones which create a kind of surround sound 3d effect from just 
two speakers and then you'd be invited to sit into the room in the corner of the room put on these headphones and it was like suddenly ghosts Happy. had entered the room and it was such a lovely wow. way of inhabiting a space yeah, you know I'd so love to do that i've heard um, a friend of mine told me there is actually a museum that's done something similar ah. they've got empty rooms with sound in them sound or i don't know whether it's interviews or whatever mm. um, and that is a really amazing experience so um you know maybe that's something i could explore as well nice um another project of yours that's kind of rumbling away uh in the background is the graphic novel that you entered into the myriad first fictions competition a few years ago that should have definitely been commissioned (laughs) by then and you are i guess serializing it now releasing the chapters as individual comics yes you're going to continue doing that as well No, no. Where is where is part three? Yes, I do intend to. I mean, other things have got in the way. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, who killed Jojo? Um, I do know who killed Jojo, <laughs> <laughs> and I do intend to tell that, the rest of that story. But it, because I've been self-publishing and hmm. it's expensive, and I just haven't been able um, to do that. Um, so, yes, at some point I will return to it. <laughs> um, what I might do is is. Uh, get a script sorted and maybe um, present it to a few more publishers, see if I can get someone interested. That mm. might be the, a better route than self-publishing. Mm. So, um, yes. Nice. And it's another murder mystery. It is another murder mystery, yeah. Which presumably yeah. is, I guess, a type of storytelling that intrigues you. It does. And I, I, I love sort of ghost stories, something with a historic twist. Um, yeah, all of that really um, excites me and because um, I have also written for teenagers so I often have teenage protagonists Mm. um, uh, in my work so uh, again that's part of um, what made up uh, Who Killed Jojo so I will return to it I promise (laughs) (laughs) everyone who's bought parts one and two and is Sort of waiting hooks. For me to <laughs> it's coming eventually. Nice. <laughs> Kathy Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. You can find more info about Kathy Brett's work by going to kathybrett.co.uk. That's C A T H Y B R E T T dot co.uk, where there are extracts of various comics that she's worked on in recent years, including Now Wash Your Hands, Who Killed Jojo, Hey Amateur, and Mary and Agnes. Kathy is one of the shortlisted artists for Surrey Artist of the Year 2022, and you can see the work that's been submitted for this exhibition alongside a variety of other artists from the county by going to New Ashgate Gallery in Farnham, where the exhibition is on Tuesdays to Saturdays until the 5th of November 2022. You can find more info about the gallery at newashgate.org.uk. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to graphic novelist and political cartoonist Henny Beaumont. We're talking about the exhibition Invisible People, which is currently on display at Worthing Museum, and as well as showcasing her own work, includes work by neurodiverse artists showcased by local charities, rocket artists, and superstar arts. I'm also talking to Henny about her graphic novel Hole in the Heart, 
and how it led to political cartoons for The Guardian and other platforms, the first iteration of Invisible People, which was showcased in Stoke Newington, and much more. The last time I chatted to you was just after your graphic novel uh, Hole in the Heart came out. So kind of in a way, tonight's chat, before we get on to the exhibition in the Worthing, is what Henny did next. And I, th- I dare say a number of people will have noticed uh, that you've had political cartoons in The Guardian and other venues. Yeah. So can you just kind of talk about, after the graphic novel came out, yeah. you know, what you did next? The project I worked on called Disappearing Women. And it was a result of hearing Jess Phillips 2019, I think it was, or 2020, reading out the names in Parliament of all the women who were murdered. And the response to that, and the response to the Sarah Ever- Everard murder, um, but also the response to the two girls, Nicole Smallman and Beaver Henry, who were murdered in the park, and the, and the um, unequal amount of publicity that was generated from these very different murders, and the sort of racist component of that publicity. And also the focus, this huge focus on stranger danger and not about the, the domestic murders, which were, mm. you know, as I painted all of the women in that year, it became very clear how many were domestic murders, how many murdered by their partners. So this is the project I did next. Um, how were these uh, disseminated? Just so online were, in an exhibition? These were all online. Uh, well, actually, they did go into an exhibition as well. Beautiful work. How long would it take you to uh, um, make an image like this? I, well, I did do it all in one go, but I would have to practice. For, I'd have to draw it first and I'd have to practice first. And I get the feeling that, you know, even though you did Hold in the Heart as a graphic novel to tell the story, uh, to tell mm. your daughter's story, it wasn't necessarily you thinking, I'm going to make a living as a graphic novelist. You do yeah. all sorts of kind of practice yeah. that you, uh, you know do in order to make a living as well as you know tell people stories yeah i mean i've done oh god knows what i do um i've done a big project for the quorum foundation for their website if you want to know money (laughs) (laughs) um uh, i did a children's book for um about brenda hale with apple hirsch um i illustrated that and then also i do uh freelance cartoons for the guardian and so this is one, I won um, a, a cartoon COVID, a very specific prize, COVID <laughs> cartoon of the year, <laughs> <laughs> which only, I guess, could happen in two years that Indeed. that was going to be a case. But this cartoon had been in my head for such a long time. I was so furious about the way kids were being treated, that no school um, and and the inequality between what kids at private schools were getting or laptops mm. and zoom lessons um and so and it's still happening today when they ugh. released the gcse results last yeah. week there were loads of articles about there being regional oh, yeah, differences <laughs> because people living in richer areas clearly had all this private yeah, tutoring private and people in other also students. bumped up yeah. all their exam results last year um, because they don't have the same kind of Oxford that state schools have. So this cartoon, when, when I did it, I was so dis- it was weird because I was so disappointed with this cartoon, how it looked, because in my head it had been there for so long and I'd had it was so complicated. And then when you do the cartoons, I and mean, you can move through them if you want, when you do the cartoons, you have so little time to do them that like you pitch them 
um, and they come back to you at 10.30 in the morning. So you pitch four black and white ideas. They come back at 10.30, say which one they like, and you have to finish that by four. So it's, you know, like that's colour and drawing and everything. So wow. it's, it's really tight. But that, the other one I showed had been in my head for a very long time. And what I try and do, because I did a survey of all the Guardian cartoons, and I sussed out that so often women um, aren't included in cartoons. So often the focus is men. And um, so I try, mm. if I can, to centre a woman. Um, and I usually want to, in the pitch of my four cartoons, there'll be, it will be a woman featured. And this one, sometimes they go through and they go, yeah, we'll have that one. Or sometimes they go, mm. I actually would like the one of Boris here. Yeah. But I mean, again, in this, I managed to get um, a diverse uh, population in my cartoon, as well as getting Boris, um, you know, as a caricature, doing the kind of conventional cartoon thing of um, taking the politicians. But I'm, before we move on, I mean, I'm interested yeah. also in terms of you including pop culture references. So here we have Boris as. Um, John Travolta. John Travolta, thank yeah. you, in Staying Alive. Uh, here we have uh, the lead superheroine from The Incredibles. Here we have a board game. Um, yeah. How important is it for you to have these kind of pop culture touchstones as an element in your cartoons? Do you find oh, the Guardian sometimes commission those more than the ones that don't have? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just sometimes if it kind of jumps out at me as a punchy idea, um, and then that will that will come into the cartoon. I mean, it just suddenly occurred to me that it was funny. You know, yeah. there will be a moment where it just goes, ah, him staying alive. It just, it worked in the sort of um, panels. I don't know. Mm. So no, no, I'm not aware of trying to include a pop culture reference at all. And that's one of my more sort of straight sort of cartoon cartoons, which is, uh, it's curtains for you, Boris. And then it says, Dear Cabinet, we need to pull ourselves together or something like that. Mm. Which um, was the curtain... What, what, it was the curtain scandal. There wasn't the curtain <laughs> It was the decoration. You know, the... But in a way, this actually feels more like a Guardian house style. Because you could it? easily see Martin Rosen doing this. You could easily see yeah. Steve Bell doing this. They seem to lean into the really kind of like dark yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff more than you do. Yes, well, I mean, as I say, I try and, you know, the, I don't know what I would have pitched. And I did a couple of other, I, in fact, I think I might have had a Love Island um, <laughs> pitch in that. I put in I put in some preliminary drawings for you to see because I thought it might be quite interesting. Um, Are they later on? Uh, they might, yeah, yeah, yeah there. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's a Love Island one. We've got a text. <laughs> Um, and then a Disney That's All Folks one and so I think those might have been I don't know if those were four I pitched that day but the one they chose was ah. the Boris as Noah gosh so to um, go from that image to this fully rendered one in four and a half six yeah, and a half yeah and sometimes hours. they come back <laughs> at half eleven sometimes you're going wow. please can you just like contact me and let me know what I've got to do and, and actually, the last one I did, um, I did one of um, uh, Pretty Patel um, doing a kind of directing refugees onto planes. Um, that it was when the it was when the, all the planes were being cancelled. So, and it was a good one. And um, they went for that. And I started doing that. 
Um, and then an hour later, they said, actually, no, we can't. you've got to stop that because there's an embargo on um, putting anything out about um, about Rwanda. Wow. Yeah, so then then I had to produce the one I did, which was Noah, uh, not Noah, Bob the Builder, Horace the Builder. So it was like, which wasn't the one I really wanted to do. So what happens when you when you pitch them you get really overly attached to one of them and you really want them to go for that and you have to write it so you send your pitch and you also have to write a little pitch saying this is you know sort of literally describing it but also saying and this is the one I read well that's what I always say and this is one I really like to do and they'll just come back and go we'll go for number two (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's the one I had to do at the last minute um, which was are some of these digital and some of these analog? Yeah, or? this is a mixture. So that I think I drew mm. partly because I was out of you know, I was short of time for this one. So I drew that all of them would have been drawn on paper and then I scanned it in and then I digitally coloured some of that. Yeah. Right. And this is one I was really pleased with actually. I think that's why I include the bit just because mm. just I like the, um, the look of it, mm. the way it worked. I quite like the way it moves through the three stages and it's got a very sort of clear narrative. It feels like it's got a whole story in the actual single cartoon. And they feel very multimedia as well, like you're mixing a painterly style with a kind of drawn illustration style with digital text. Yeah. Is that something that appeals to you, having these Yes, I do like that. And also because Putin is a kind of a cartoon character, isn't he? He's a cartoon of a man, whereas Hmm. Zelensky is this very real... um, Mm. solid figure so um yeah it definitely feeds into the sort of storytelling of being able to sort of play with the stars nice um so also (laughs) you've worked on illustrated books yeah so this was this was i was a tutor on this group the book of homelessness this was um a book we put together just before the pandemic so i was working with a group of homeless people and um, we got them to write their stories, and it was actually the first graphic book with people who uh, were writing their own stories. So there's been graphic novels about homelessness, but they've mm. often been from people who actually haven't experienced homelessness. So this was the first graphic novel that was actually written from that perspective, and it, I, mean, I really recommend it. It's a really beautiful book, um, and it tells lots of stories. Mm. So people, victims of torture, people, you know, really diverse group, um, but they all, and, and and getting it together was a nightmare because we locked down a week before the end of the course, so we had to get all the work in and then produce the book, so it was a bit mm. of a miracle that we got it done. And which charity funded that? Uh, Accumulate, so it's in connection, so I was a tutor at Ravensbourne and it was a, uh, Accumulate works with Ravensbourne and they, um, they also go on to give three students scholarships to go through Ravensbourne they pay mm. their fees and their accommodation it's, yeah it's a great traffic charity nice and the other book is Maternal Journal which is um, it is I've done a chapter and it's for women who are having difficulties through postnatal depression or mental health issues and it's it's about creative journaling as a way to as a sort of therapeutic guide of how to reconnect with yourself after you've had a baby cool that's a great book too Mm. and your graphic novel oh yes so that's my graphic novel that i've talked to you about some time ago um and this is the kids book as well everything how did that come about that was extraordinary actually because that book came out at this time that um boris was proroguing parliament (laughs) 
and, and Lady Hell suddenly became this huge figure. And the book came out and we sold out before <laughs> it went to publication. And to adults or children. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I think it might. Mm. And, uh, and then we had to reprint before we'd actually, you know, mm. publish. So um, that came about through a lawyer who'd read my book, Hole in the Heart. And then uh, they were going to do a book about Lady Hell, and um, they'd given her loads of books to look at for the illustrations. And they gave her my book, oh. and she read Hole in the Heart, and then she gave it to her husband to read, and then her daughter to read, and they approved me. Fantastic. So then I was chosen as the illustrator oh. for her book. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, you could think of a thousand subjects that children's books should be about that they aren't taught about that they don't have in an easily digestible format and it's great that there's a book about the supreme court for children <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's done in such a nice way it's written by afra hirsch and she focused the little girl with the red ribbon her hair yeah. is the focus of the book so it's told through her eyes and um lady hell is almost an incidental character she's a very modest woman um and she was very pleased with that that she wasn't sort of the main focus, even though it is about Supreme Court and her role in the Supreme Court. Nice. Yeah. Mm. And uh, cartoons that were disseminated via bus stops. Yes, this really kept me and a group of friends. Um, I'm not sure if I'm because it was illegal. Anything you need me to redact (laughs) from the podcast. They were friends, they were people I knew, kept (laughs) us going uh, in lockdown. So we we produced the posters and then we put them out in bus stops because advertising ceased. um, So it seemed like a really good idea. And uh, our aim, we felt that we managed to bring down Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. (laughs) We took a lot of credit for that because um, we put all these, we did a huge campaign thing. And those were all hand-painted. So these are massive bus stop posters that I've painted these great big orange things on the floor and and his red uh, tie. It was actually very good fun. And then we also did... We did a massive poster that we put up on, as a billboard, which was um, the, which was then picked up by the Guardian and sold in the Guardian. Which I'm sorry, I haven't put a slide of that actually, but it was for something called the Majonzi Fund, so commissioned by someone called Patrick Vernon, um, and um, it was a picture of all the people um, who black and ethnic minority who had died in COVID. So terrible. Wow. But um, and we managed to put that on a big uh, billboard in Stoke Newton as well. Fantastic. We are commissioned to do that. Nice. This was then the display board for the initial incarnation of Invisible People. Yes. So this summer I put on two exhibitions at the same time, which were kind of stupidly called the same name and caused me quite a lot of problems. But so, but one was Invisible People, Stoke Newton. And one was Invisible People Worthing. And this was the first one that we put on. And the idea was to give space to people who marginalised, disabled, had learning disabilities in shops. Nice. I worked with Kate Revere, who runs a social enterprise. Uh, You can see her shop there, Revere the Residence. And she employs people um, with learning disabilities. Um, So... We worked together and we got 90 shops on board in Stoke Church Street all to host work 
by um, people with learning disabilities and other marginalised people. Cool. And then we sold the work, um, and they... Oh, so this this was the... <laughs> this is our opening. So for our opening event, we um, chalked the street. Um, Closed it first, presumably. We got into trouble. No, we didn't. <laughs> no! Don't! But, wow. Um, so we chalked the streets, yeah. And it was really good fun, but but insane um, as the opening for, for the project. Nice. Yeah, and so we wrote all of the... Oh, yeah, and we fly-posted as well all over. Um, and actually, we did this, and the woman came out and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I thought it was a sh- shop. It, you know, it had been shut for ages. Nicer than graffiti. No, and then she and she said, what is it? And I said, it was people with London's business. They're drawings, and she went, oh, okay, carry on. And we were like, okay, thank Excellent. you. <laughs> yeah. And if she really disliked it, presumably it's easier to remove that with a power washer than it is spray paint. So Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Only, uh, we got really positive feedback from people. Um, mm. It was a fantastic event in that it connected all these shops together, it connected all these artists together, it made them feel part of the community, they made mm. friends with each other. It was, yeah, it was a really positive. We want to do it next year. And um, At the risk of being... A slight cynic. Um, Stoke Newington is quite affluent and boho and strikes me as the sort of place where if you meet the right people, you can put on an exhibition like this that maybe the community facilitates something like that. In comparison then, was it harder to make a connection with Worthing? Which all seems to be gentrifying now, the whole Brighton effect, but for years was kind of a down-at-heel seaside community, mainly elderly you know, had this it's reputation. Just labor, hasn't it? The uh, first time had, ever. Yes, just voted yeah. Labour for the first time. Yeah. I mean, they used to have UKIP on the local council, for God's sake, you right. know. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems kind of miles apart in terms of the demographic. Yeah. Well, we didn't do the same show. So, the Worthing Exhibition was different in that um, uh, I have been asked in residence for the Institute of Learning Disabilities and uh, Respond UK. So, um, Respond UK, uh, a group of psychotherapists who work with people with learning disabilities, and BUILD are the British Institute of Learning Disabilities, and they uh, promote uh, um, the work of people with learning disabilities and the rights of people with learning disabilities. And they put, build, put on a series of seminars that I was invited to be asked and residents to attend, which were all about trauma for people with learning disabilities and looking at different areas of trauma. So we looked at uh, how people are traumatised by the legal system, by care system, by care commissioning, uh, by education... And then I had to respond as a, an artist and come up with a sort of single image uh, after. But it wasn't just, actually, it wasn't just after attending it. Then mm. I had to, a bit similar to The Guardian, I had to send my sketches to these big groups of kind of clinical psychologists, all these professional people, and then also people with lived experience, so people with autism, other people with learning disabilities. And then they all commented on my work. And then I would then feed back and then send the final version. Mm. But sometimes it was like there was a really big discussion about the kind of language that I was going to use and whether it was appropriate and people said really useful things. And then sometimes it was, I think blue would work there. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> But uh, generally, it was a really creative process and really useful. And um, 
So Worthing Gallery approached me and said, oh, would you like to put on Disappearing Women? They'd seen my work online. Ah. That's how it happened. And I actually said, no, I don't want to because it's really complicated. I did it as um, a projection and um, it's a kind of ephemeral thing. I, it would need a lot of work to make sure people felt okay about mm the work being permanently displayed that big length of time and I just felt it wasn't really appropriate for an exhibition anyway I said to them I've got other work I'm doing work on learning disabilities would you be interested in that and they said yeah actually we would so um, I said okay and then and then as I so at the same time as having agreed to do this exhibition I started to think about the kind of the makeup of the groups that I was working on in the seminars that always had people with um, lived experience and I was thinking, I'm not sure, actually, if I can just show my own work by itself uh, in an exhibition about learning mm. disabilities. I need, actually, to show other people's work. So I then um, contacted a group in Brighton, Rocket Artists, who work with people with learning disabilities. They mentor. And, actually, I spoke to them. They said, I said, that's fantastic, you mentor people with learning disabilities. And they said, no, no, we mentor each other. It's a two-way process. And I thought, oh, God, you are absolutely fantastic. I love you. I want to work <laughs> with you. So they, um, I said, we, we could come and do workshops. And then we, uh, the idea was to make um, plates and cups out of the, yeah. So we... Got so with a ceramicist, Bridget Connolly. Um, I we did a workshop. We got the the artist to draw on paper. We cut out for them, and um, and they the idea was for them to design either their favourite mm. dinner or or their favourite dinner and who they'd like to eat their favourite meal with. So mm. we got a lot of lovely images based on favourite foods, and then. Bridget fired the work onto using transfers um, mm. onto the plates. So, and then the idea was to set a table and it for to be symbolically represent that everyone has a place at the table, mm. and that's what we called it. So, awesome. oh, they're really good. Yeah, they are. They are so wonderful. Some of the plates <laughs> are. I mean, actually, I love them all, but they some of them are particularly superb and funny and just really direct and beautiful. And also includes, alongside their own yeah. work, your kind of political commentary, yes. you know, as you mentioned before, about trauma. Yeah. Um, and a, as well as seeing, you know, all of these young people's art, which is fantastic, that they've been given this space where they're being exhibited alongside famous painters. Um, I also found it really informative because, you know, your use of the word trauma isn't something that we really associate with the experience of people with learning difficulties. Yeah. But once you kind of explain it that they're just kind of everyday interactions with the world that we find completely, yeah. you know, second nature and commonplace. There are all sorts of experiences that are traumatic because they yeah. just don't know how to navigate the minutiae of yeah. modern life. Yeah, mm. that's absolutely right. Yeah, and, um, or, and we don't know how to respond to it correctly mm. often. Um, I mean, you put... I mean, the, I ha, I, the, each piece has quite a long and complicated label that... Uh, my husband very kindly helped me um, put together <laughs> um, and um, explaining. So this one has this one. This was a story that was, actually was so moving that um, so 
Julian and Michael, they spoke together from their, his, his supported living arrangement. And uh, Julian described how he had been in a long-term hospital 20 years ago, and Michael had been a student nurse. And Michael was just appalled at the treatment that Julian was receiving. It was very clear he had a learning disability, that he wasn't criminal, that he shouldn't be. But he was being given injections, he was being restrained, I mean, all mm. sorts of appalling treatment. And uh, Michael organised uh, for him to live in supported housing. Julian made friends, joined a football team, has got a girlfriend now. Um, and I was trying to sort of get to the bottom of how this relationship, I mean, this was a 20-year relationship that I was coming into mm. and hearing. And I was saying, is it down, I said to Michael, was, was it down to your relationship with Julian that, you know, things took a turn for the better for him? And he said, no, 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 it was absolutely down to Julian's personal resilience. And um, Julian said, no, it was down to Michael. <laughs> so they were incredibly sweet together, like, just, you yeah. know, acknowledging the relationship, but the mm. care. So yeah. th this one actually is from, is, is uh, more based on my own experience, and it's from, it was adapted or inspired but from an image from Hole in the Heart and about going to, um, taking my daughter to school. But the, the other parents, the other people who have experience of um, taking their disabled or mm. learning disabled kids to school were like oh that's me you know several of them said mm. it um and that sense of being outside of things and thinking everyone else is sort of having this wonderful time and you're kind of out of the loop of everything or stuck in a sort of mm. gray kind of swirlpool and i think that in and of itself is really fascinating that you've taken a panel from your graphic novel and blown it up into a much uh, bigger image and reworked it, mm. which I think maybe is instructive to any kind of cartoonist in the audience, that if they're thinking of ways that they can build on their own work and yeah. maybe transfer uh, an image that they think is powerful into kind of a larger piece, that yeah. this is actually a process that you can kind of undertake. Yeah, I think so quite often you've, you, you're not really done with things, mm. you know, that you can actually go back and rework or, or see different new things in them and Mm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, does anyone in the audience or even in cyberspace uh, have any questions for Henny? Myth. I'm really interested in the Guardian work. Um, so, how do you know what the news stories are going to be that day? And are you submitting just on spec, or do they invite you to submit? Okay, so they invite you to submit, so you're given a, a day, and then you have to just go, eh, what's the top news stories, and look at, you know, you'd have to read, and so, so you have to... No, I like, I do it maybe, I mean, I'm quite interested in news anyway, but I will go, really go hard in for like a couple of days beforehand, and because it's not only being on top of the news is you have to find an angle and you have to find that kind of sort of flip moment that's n not necessarily funny but it just gives it something else so uh, I, I just I go through newspapers and listen and listen to podcasts and and then and, and draw and quite often it's actually as I'm drawing so I might I'll choose maybe four stories and try and draw something about the story 
and um, and then quite often in the act of drawing something will come out but I then quite often send it to mates um, uh, and I send it to my sister who's brutal she'll just go no <laughs> that was really funny and sometimes you get really stuck on an idea and you think no this is really funny you don't know and it's really funny and then you show a few other people and they're like understand it and also actually my son is quite a good barometer because <laughs> if he gets it immediately I think oh yeah okay that's it's it's kind of quite straightforward even if the concepts are slightly more complicated if he thinks it's funny and he'll go yeah that's funny mum but sometimes he'll go that's funny because he doesn't want to talk to me so, <laughs> so you've got to be careful to get the right are you sort of on a rotation of like how frequently it's, you get your it's um it's not as clear as that. I'm one of their cartoons they use and they call me, like I was offered one in the summer but actually I couldn't do it. Um, and I, you know, that's, they probably, I would have thought, need a better system. <laughs> but yeah, so it just comes. Do you think that they pick from the floor some visions based on the story or the cartoon idea? Which do you think is the I, I think they base it on the story because actually I did have a long chat with one of the editors and he said to me that the cartoon needs to be a separate story in itself. So if they've got three other opinion pieces, so say they've got a piece about Rwanda, a piece about Ukraine, a piece about cost of living, they might not want you to repeat it. They might want something completely different. So, But I th it usually feels to me that they go on the strength see him starting to type and then behind him there's oh. something going on and then the third one you see all his writing is Brexit, 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 Brexit. <laughs> but it was supposed to be like The Shining. <laughs> so it wasn't a popular reference. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and actually I did the best Shining cartoon. My f absolute favourite cartoon that they didn't publish was um, was a hotel. Someone arriving at the hotel. It was when, uh, it was when people were being put into... Uh, lockdown hotels and I did it as the shining hotel and I'd done the carpet and everything it was so nice and the day before uh, Martin Rowson had done a shining hotel with, and, but the, the guy the the said, yeah I mean it was probably obvious because it was going no he didn't do the shining but he had done a, sure. a nasty hotel but the shining uh, okay. honestly was I think was the 
shit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and the editor said that oh, that really made me laugh. And normally they don't. They normally just go, yeah, I have number one or number two. But he said that really made me laugh. But but unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. They should have used that for lockdown too, the sequel, because because <laughs> there's that scene in The Shining where Danny's going round and round in circles. It would have made yeah. it, you know. But well, maybe I'll try again. I'll lockdown three. Yeah. <laughs> Zara, please. Did you curate the, the rocket artist's work, or did they do that? Did they choose? I curated it. So, but they sent me a lot of images, um, and I think I think I might have used as many as I could, and maybe all of them for the. So it's rockets artists and superstar arts. So I think for the plates, I used everything that they sent um, because it was a big table and I wanted to include everyone. But for the images on the wall, I chose them separately. Yeah. Superstars are in Superstars are in Worthing. Yeah. They follow them on Instagram. They do lovely things. Well, it's nice getting you in a bit like um, we had Julian Hanshaw last month, that it's called Cartoon County and quite often it's actually Brighton. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to have people from West Sussex, from East Sussex and, you know, spread the net a little bit further about all the artists that are working across yeah. uh, Sussex. Yeah. I mean, do you have any particular connection to this part of the world? I went to college here, ah. Brighton Art College, um, and my brother lives here. My daughter's boyfriend's mum lives here. <laughs> so now I'm getting a bit tenuous. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Any other questions? Can you tell us how big you grew How big? Mm. Um, what, for the cartoon? Oh, I'm to Yes, um, I draw a, th my scan is A3, so I draw A3, <laughs> But I would draw bigger. I mean, the, the bus stop posters I did mm. a massive I would like to draw bigger really if I yeah but for car and I actually draw in an A4 sketchbook most of the time and I do my ink the A4 is the wrist the A3 is the elbow the bus stops the other <laughs> <laughs> bus stops everything yeah, yeah. Oh, I really want to know more about the bus stop posters was that just like your idea or was it part of a collective because I know there um, are a few groups in this country yeah well, it was actually D Darren Cullen. Um, ah. I think he inspired me, who does um, Spelling Mistakes Cost Lives. And then he does yeah, a lot of, those. you know, his yeah. work. Yeah, so... Did you not go out in the dead of night and not put posters no. up in? Do you know what we didn't do? Is we didn't go out with face masks and um, <laughs> high-vis vests. Uh, and uh, so led by donkeys, that's... Um, mm. How they started. Yeah, I've interviewed Darren. He's really interesting. Um, they had an exhibition of his work at Lycav last year or the year yeah. before in the Lakes. So yeah. It's good yeah. that he's his work is kind of feeding out into the wider comics, you know, audience. Because yeah. sometimes you think, um, and this, I mean, it's really great that your work kind of crosses all these different boundaries, that there seem to be these almost discrete bubbles of people who do the same kind of visual language political cartoonists comic creators uh children's illustrators and you've done a lot but yeah. it's almost like those groups sometimes keep separate and it's nice that they overlap from time to time yeah. in places like the lakes festival in places like the cartoon museum uh -huh. in places like cartoon county <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and so on yeah. mm. any other questions well I, I would love to know 
just a little bit at least about how you lead your, your sessions with the people with learning disabilities and get towards the plates. Could you say something about that? Um, how we met it? Um, and I, yeah, I've been working with groups of people as well in revis- the residents with learning disabilities. Um, we bought in the materials really straightforward brought in the materials and um, asked them to draw what they like to eat and and right. everyone kind of just got on with it and then I went round and talked to people individually I, th- I guess we were very patient um, I mean, sorry that's probably not very helpful um, what <laughs> no, we it yeah it wasn't really very different not very different from teaching anyone else I mean, yeah. we, we were quite directed in in what we were giving them to do. Um, so it was quite a straightforward task, and they responded to it because it was, you know, we were asking them to do something that they felt engaged with um, and liked. But I think that applies to teaching anyone, doesn't it? Did you go straight into the plates, or did you do some sketching first? Did they, they did sketching, sketching yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, most of them actually drew, drew straight onto these. Oh, it was straight onto paper, and then we put the paper onto. Then I made oh, them into JPEGs, and then we put them into transfers, and then we transferred them onto plates. So, oh, okay. ideally, I would really like to work with people next time and get them to paint directly onto plates and and have that whole sort of ceramic process. But okay. we didn't have time or, or the funding to do that. We had very yeah, limited yeah. funding. Yeah. And the difficult second album, when will we see another graphic novel by oh, you? Oh, God, you know, I've got an uh, Arts Council grant. Oh, cool. Yeah, that I'm working on now, so I need to finish it <laughs> soon. <laughs> Can you talk a little about what it's about? Um, it's, 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 it's a bit about therapy. So it kind of links into other interests um, that I have. Uh, and it's a bit about poetry as well. So. Intriguing. See you here in a couple of years' time to talk yeah, about it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Henny Beaumont, thank you very much. For more info about Henny Beaumont's work, please go to her website, hennybeaumont.com. That's H E N N Y B E A U M O N T. Invisible People, curated by Henny Beaumont and featuring her work, plus art by neurodiverse artists, sponsored by Rocket Artists and Superstar Arts, is on display at Worthing Gallery and Museum in Worthing on the south coast of England, Wednesdays to Sundays until the 30th of October 2022. You can find more info about Worthing Theatres and Museum by going to wtm.uk. My interview with Henny was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly discussion group held in Brighton and Hove, where a comic creator comes along and talks to an audience of their peers. And you're welcome to come along and join us if you're in the local area, or join us online via Zoom. More info about forthcoming Cartoon County events can be found at www.cartooncounty.com. And our guest on the 31st of October is Susan Sainsbury, who'll be talking about her two slice-of-life graphic novels, Kitty and Cheery Cack, which are period dramas set in the late 19th century and 1970s respectively, 
and tell the tales of female characters who don't feel that they quite fit into the life and culture that surrounds them. There are various events taking place online in London and elsewhere. On the 21st of November, there's the next Ladies Do Comics meeting online, with guests Carrie Franzman and Jonathan Plackett, who have recently seen their collection Gender-Swapped Greek Myths released, and also Tor Freeman, a children's comics and book illustrator, best known for her own humorous anthropomorphic strip, Welcome to Oddly. You can find more info about Ladies Do Comics, as well as their ongoing reveal project, by going to ldcomics.com. At the Cartoon Museum just off Oxford Street, they have a signing by Will McPhail of his new book, Love and Vermin, and that's taking place on Thursday, October the 20th, from 11 to 12 p.m. at the Cartoon Museum. On Mondays, starting October the 24th, they have sessions called Relaxed Mondays, which include a cartooning workshop with their resident expert and is aimed at creators 8 to 14. They also have various events taking place during half-term, including a Monster Fun workshop based on the new quarterly children's comic, which is taking place on Tuesday the 25th at 11am. Then at 2pm the same day, they have a Make a Mini Comic workshop, which will teach kids how to create their own characters and draw them into a special booklet. On Wednesday the 26th at 11am, there's a Manga workshop. Then on the 27th, there's a Spider Potato workshop, which is all about creating silly superheroes and creating Marvel-style covers. And then on the 28th, the Monster Fun and Manga workshops are run again. So these are all great activities for any kids who are interested in the medium and are looking for something to do during half-term. On November the 17th, Michael Rosen will be talking about his various letters submitted to Boris on Twitter and other platforms, and that starts at 6pm on Thursday the 17th of November. Current exhibitions currently on display at the Cartoon Museum include Sarah Akintarinwa and Mary Darley, a dialogue which is a visual dialogue between the first black British woman to become a New Yorker cartoonist and the 18th century caricaturist and print seller who was often seen as the first professional female cartoonist in the UK. Recently opened at the museum is This Exhibition is a Work Event, which is also about Boris Johnson and features various political cartoons about our former Prime Minister. You can find more info about the Cartoon Museum, including their location and opening hours, by going to cartoonmuseum.org. Forbidden Planet London, near Covent Garden Tube, has various signings taking place over the next few weeks, including Cy Spiria and Charlie Adlard signing their new comic, Damn Them All, on Saturday the 29th of October at 1pm. Lord of the Rings fans might like to go along to the shop on Thursday the 10th of November when Alan Lee and Brian Sibley will be signing The Fall of Numenor and that's at 5.30pm on Thursday the 10th. And then on Sunday the 13th of November from 2pm, Howard Berger and Marshall Julius will be signing their new book Masters of Makeup Effects, A Century of Practical Magic. More info about Forbidden Planet signings can be found at ForbiddenPlanet.com and click on the link marked Events. If you're interested in getting hold of signed graphic novels, Gosh London have various events taking place throughout the year, with recent signed comics including Je ne sais quoi by Luciano, Thieves by Lucy Bryan, 
Batman One Dark Knight by Jock, and Miracle Man The Silver Age number one, signed by Mark Buckingham. Gosh's next in-store signing is on Thursday the 17th of November, where there's a launch party and Q&A for the new graphic novel Wiper by John Harris Dunning and Ricardo Cabral. You can find more info about Gosh's forthcoming events in-store on Berwick Street by going to Facebook and searching for Gosh London, or to buy comics that have been signed on previous Gosh signing events by going to goshlondon.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. Our next episode will be broadcast on Resonance FM on Wednesday the 2nd of November and you can find over 500 previous episodes on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com So please go online and download interviews with the likes of Greg Rucker, Garth Ennis, Sarah Merck, Michael Rosen, Hannah Berry, Steve McManus, and many more. And hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Panel Borders online or as a podcast next month. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.